0: Well, good morning, church. How's everybody today? Well, it's an honor to be with you this morning. Um, we have not had the privilege of meeting yet. My name is Trevor Miller, and I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Horebunai Methodist Church, and it's an honor to be with you this morning. As we gather on a Sunday morning, we do so for a very specific reason, because believe me, there's other things we could do with our Sunday morning, right? We could go to Waffle House, whatever else, but we are here because, that sounds good. If you want to go afterwards, we can go, but never mind. We are here for a very specific reason. We believe that when we show up together and we worship with one another, that somehow in a mysterious way God meets us here. And God does something in us and through us. And as a collective whole, as a church, in this venue, across the way, those who are watching online, wherever they are around the United States of America, we have the opportunity then to live out this faith to a community in a world that's in need to see the love of God. That's what we're here for this morning. And so I consider it a great honor to be able to open up the scriptures with you, that God might teach us something new, that he might work within our hearts in some kind of way. It's an honor to be here with you. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Moving Beyond Me. And if you were here last weekend, I was over in the other room. I know Jeff was here last weekend. But in essence, there was one main message that we wanted to really kick this whole series off with, and that is this In order for us to move beyond ourselves and see others around us and reach out in service and love towards them to really truly love God, then it has to begin with us moving beyond ourselves. In essence, at the very foundation of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, we believe is this: submission. The Bible speaks about it in many different ways, but last week we said what it looks like and what the Bible says it is is it's a dying to self. That each and every day, it's a choosing to crucify our old selves with Christ and then come alive to this new way of living that Jesus offers us. That's how we move beyond ourselves. We must die to ourselves to become alive to who God truly wants us to be. And here's the thing, it's not an easy thing to do. It's really, really difficult to die to self and to live for Christ. Um, But it's a proposition that we as Christians must take on ourselves. I would argue that this is the most important sermon series that we've preached here at Mount Horvath. And I want to be very clear, we've been doing preaching at Mount Horvath for a long time before I ever showed up. But I believe this sermon series is so important because the majority— At the heart of the majority of our relational conflict, our our personal dysfunction, and our spiritual stagnation is this, a self-centered nature, a desire only to see self and not pay attention to those around us. So if nothing else, this message comes at a very opportune time because this is a holiday weekend, tomorrow being the holiday, the day of love. So all the men in the room, I just want to say one thing really quickly, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Wink. So if I've just communicated something to you, you're welcome. We don't have to talk about it beyond that. But after church, you need to get on the phone, okay? Flowers, chocolate, dinner, so forth. Okay, Tomorrow is Valentine's Day. It's the day of love. And I would argue to really, truly embrace a holiday like Valentine's Day, it has to start with us seeing beyond ourselves and seeing our significant other and truly loving them. That's what Valentine's Day is about. I I have a letter that I brought with me this morning that I've kept since 2008. This letter was written to me by my then girlfriend and now wonderful wife, Jenna Owens at the time. And she wrote this letter. I just want to share a little bit with you. This is from February 24th. How about that? Uh, 2008. <clears throat> Trevor, you are incredible. I'm just reading what it says, people. So she says, I have never in my life known someone like you. You're. I think it's a good thing. Uh, your endurance to go through week after week, the stuff that you go through, blows my mind. And I don't think I realize how special of a person God, God has made you to be. I'll skip through all the mushy stuff, but there's other things in the letter. But at the very end, she says this I pray that we'll continue uh, to grow in our relationship together. I thank God every day for you. And I want to continue to be you to be the very best lilac you can be. It's an inside joke. I won't share it with you. But the last thing she says is this I love you, Jenna. I love you. Now, tomorrow, when I give a Valentine's Day card back to my wife on Valentine's Day, I will close that letter in the exact same way. I love you. It's the quintessential Valentine's Day greeting, right? It's printed on every conversation, heart. It is uh, printed on every single overly priced greeting card that we'll buy this weekend. And it's piped onto cupcakes and cakes of all kinds. It is what Valentine's Day is truly all about. Here's the problem, though. I would argue that just as we say to our spouse or our significant other, "I love you" on Valentine's Day, the truth is we we love everything, don't we? We love pizza. We love football. You know, we love sunsets. We love this. We love that. We love dogs. We love uh, chipotle. Amen. We love all of these things, and yet we love our husbands. We love our wives. We love our children. We love our grandchildren, and ultimately, we we love Jesus. Surely, there's a distinction between these kinds of loves. Surely, your love for pizza is different than your love for spouse. If not, we need to talk afterwards, right away. Surely, there's a difference here. This weekend, what I want to talk about this morning is, is love, because I would argue that our culture has lost the true meaning of love. It's thrown around so often and it's used for everything that I would argue that for us to recapture love is is essential for the people of God to be able to exist within the world in such a way that people take notice and God is made more famous. In order for that to happen, we have to recapture what real true love looks like. And in order for us to move beyond ourselves, we have to start in the same place. So we're going to take a fresh look today at what the scriptures say, what they speak about, the love of God for us. And then ultimately, the love that God gives to us and how it goes then to those around us. See, the Jewish people throughout the Old Testament were very concerned about their relationship, the way they related to Yahweh, to God. So throughout the Old Testament, there's all kinds of writings about the way they would relate to this God uh, between themselves and him. And so throughout the Old Testament, there are commands, instructions, regulations, whole books dedicated to those things for what it looks like to relate to God in a way that honors him and honors people. The, The problem is that somewhere along the way, throughout the Old Testament, with these commands, these regulations... Uh, the people of God left deep love for God and instead took up legalistic rule following for God. It was no longer keeping these things because of a deep love for him. It was a, it was a checking of the box. It was a doing the right thing so that we could just make sure that God is not angry with us and he's, and he's pleased with us. And there's a deviation that takes place here. There are certain individuals in the New Testament then that kind of characterize this deviation. They're known as Sadducees and Pharisees. You may have heard of them before. Two different groups of people. And these two different groups of people had somewhere along the way, they were meant to be the spiritual guides for the communities they existed within, but instead many of them became enforcers who had lost passion and love for God and instead become militant patrollers for those around them. Making sure everyone else was checking the box as well. So Old Testament to New Testament, there's a major shift that takes place here. Now, if you're a parent in the room or a grandparent in the room, you know what this is like. Because for me as a parent, I have three kids. I don't want my kids to listen, obey, and be in good relationship with my wife and I simply because they don't want to get in trouble. I don't want them to obey or be faithful simply because they're checking the box so they can do this thing they want to do later on. My hope and my prayer would be that my children would be so in love with my wife and I, we would so love them and they would sense that so much that obedience and faithfulness would come because of that love relationship. This was the intention for God's people, but it got lost along the way. And so in the Gospel of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament, Jesus is having a conversation with one of these groups, two of these groups, in fact. The first one is with these Sadducees, and secondly, with these Pharisees. Now, over and over and over again throughout the four Gospels, you see these individuals come to Jesus, and they give him questions. And these questions aren't just to have nice banter, but instead they're trying to trap him in his answer. Because they believe if they can trap Jesus, that he might give a wrong answer, spiritual authorities will come and he'll be taken away and they'll win. And so over and over and over again, there's these questions. And we find in Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees had failed in trying to trap Jesus. So now it was the Pharisees' turn. Here's what it says in Matthew 22, verse 34 through 40. It says, hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together And one of them, an expert in the law, the commands, all the instructions, all the checking of the boxes in the Old Testament, expert in the law, tested Jesus with this question. Here's what he says. Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in all of the law? Side note. What he's talking about is all the Old Testament ways of relating to God. Which one of all the things that have been written for, for all the past history that we have, what's the most important one? And here's the goal. If Jesus picks the wrong one, we got him. So what's the most important, Jesus? What's your opinion? Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now he's quoting from Old Testament scripture. Jesus is like, okay, you probably know this one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. But then he says this. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is just like it. Love your neighbor as you love what? Yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two. So Jesus says, if you really want to boil this down, if you really want to do the most important thing you could possibly do with your life, if you really want to know the greatest commandment, all of them, everything that's been written, can be boiled down to these two things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And love your neighbor as you love yourself. This is the greatest way to live. This is Jesus' answer. Now, I would argue that one of the most disregarded passages of Scripture takes place in this passage. Because Jesus is making a really big assumption here. Jesus' assumption, the greatest commandment in all the Bible, assumes that we actually love ourselves. Love the Lord your God with our heart, soul, and mind, and then love your neighbor, those around you, as you love yourself. I just want to be honest for a minute. There are probably some people in the room that if you were to love me the way you love yourself, I wouldn't appreciate it very much. Because there are some of us in the room this morning who don't really, truly love ourselves. We don't see ourselves the way that God sees us. And the problem is, what this will do is it will keep us from moving beyond me. It will keep us focused on self if we cannot receive the love of God. Now, I want to be clear for a moment because some in the room are like, Yeah, you're right. I am so amazing. I am such a blessing to those around me. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the kind of love of self that Jesus is talking about. It's not an inflated ego. It's not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. It's not an unhealthy arrogance. Instead, what Jesus is talking about is a spiritual confidence that can only come by receiving the love of God that he has for you. That's what Jesus is talking about. And so in order for us to move beyond ourselves, we have to be able to see ourselves accurately, the kind of worth and the kind of value that God has for us. So I want you to see how this plays out for just a moment. If we were to love God first and foremost with all that we have, and we are to love others as we love ourselves, the problem is that some of us in the room, we don't really love ourselves. And so it causes the other two things to fail immediately. We fail to recognize how truly special we are in the eyes of God. How truly valuable we are. The, the Bible says it in many different ways. But probably the most famous one, Bryce actually quoted earlier from John chapter 3, verse 16. Here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, That whoever believes in him shall not perish, but will be given eternal life. For God so loved the world. God so loved the world. One of my favorite pastors, Judah Smith, he says that God had a case of the so loves. You ever had a case of the so loves? The kind of love that you can't really fully express. The kind of love that's irrational, it's ridiculous, it's unexplainable, it's powerful, it's overwhelming. That kind of love. When I was a kid, um, my parents were infected with a case of the so-loves. I remember there'd be these certain times where all my friends would be around, and my mom would like, think this is the right time to say, I love you, honey, and kiss you on the cheek, and you're like, Mom, just knock it off. Like there are people that are watching right now, and this is not an appropriate time. And there's this girl right over there, and you have to stop right. Now. You know, I remember just being like, "Mom, just quit." You know, my dad. He'd take me to school in the mornings when I was a kid, and my sister and I. And my dad was very much one to be like, "Listen, I love you, hugs, all kinds of stuff." And I'd be like, "You can drop me off right here. No further." I will walk to the school from here just because I didn't want to have the expression in front of everybody. Just knock it off, will you? That a case of the so loves. And I, I swore to myself at that point in time, I will never be that kind of father. And then I had children. And my oldest is in the room and he can, he's right now like, yes, it's true. Just the other day we were looking through a box that's in my oldest son's closet. And it's everything he ever brought home from school. All the things that are supposed to be paintings or pictures. you know, And we've kept them all these years. It's because we love him. We so love him. We were looking through some videos on my wife's phone just the other day of my, my middle son. And watching him say some of the funny things he said. He was so cute. And we, we love him. We so love him. And now I have a daughter. And I didn't know as a dad, after two boys, what a daughter would do to you. But I have been wrecked. We love her. One of my favorite things in the world is taking my boys to school and unless, if she doesn't argue into the van to go with us to drop them off, when I get home and I walk inside, the first thing she does is daddy and runs and gives me a hug right away. It melts me every single time. It, it's a case of the so-loves. You see, this kind of love, if you're a parent in the room, if you're a grandparent in the room, it cannot be quantified. You can't Accurately express it. But God so loved the world in this kind of way, the Bible says. And I have news for you. If you are breathing today, you are a part of that world. God loves you. He doesn't just tolerate you. He he loves you. He so loves you. And so if God had some cosmic mantle in his cosmic God house, he would have your picture framed right on there when the angels would come in, he'd be like, listen, come look at this. See this right here? This is my son. I love him. If he had a cosmic wallet that he would open up, pictures would just fall out. This is my daughter, and I'm so proud that she's mine. I love her. It can't be overexpressed. Even if for an hour I told you, you are loved by God, you are loved by God, you are loved by God, it would never, ever do it justice. God just loves. It's a part of his nature. You'll never stop him. He'll never stop pursuing you because he loves you. And there are many people throughout human history who have tried really hard to get God off their, tra- their trail. You know, just God, would you just knock it off? Like, would you quit with the love? Would you quit showing up in these different kinds? And the problem is, it will never work for one word, love. He loves the world. It's the purpose for which you were created. And God can't stop himself. You're the object of his affection. And so maybe even this morning, some of us, you might say, though we say that we believe God loves us unconditionally, many of us this morning, we live otherwise. Like intellectually, if you've grown up in the church, perhaps you would intellectually say, yes, I know God loves me. I know the Bible says so. I know that I have breath in my lungs and there's a sunrise in the morning and I have my family and so forth. I know God loves me, but the the traveling distance from here to here is a long way. And to move from being intellectually convicted about God's love for us into feeling it within our heart and soul are two completely different things. But when it makes it to our heart, it begins to transform us and change us in some kind of way. Maybe you know someone who's been so hyper-focused on self for a very, very long time. A mother, a father, a child, a friend. And perhaps it's because they have never allowed this truth to become a part of their life. That they are truly loved by God. So they don't need you to validate them. They don't need you to somehow supply something for them because they have all they need in the love of their creator. And they believe it, not just in their head, but in their heart. I think there's two things that preoccupy us and keep us stuck when it comes to love of God and love for others. that keep us stuck from moving beyond ourselves. The first one is this. Trying to prove ourselves to God. If we don't really truly believe God loves us, then we try to prove ourselves to Him, and that will keep us self-centered. There are many folks that I've run into over the years who've been so convinced that they have to prove their value to God so that they would so that He would love them. So there's a hyper focus on career to be the best, hyper-focus on sports, education, relationships, self-sufficiency, all the different ways that we can possibly show God and impress him so that he would see us as worthy of his love. Here's the problem. That kind of living only leads to exhaustion and burnout, trying to prove yourself to God. Here's the thing. I don't think God is impressed by you. If you really think the God of the universe will be impressed by your GPA, I mean, do do you really think God of the universe will be impressed by your trophy case or your bank account? How many followers you have on social media? I don't think he's mesmerized by your Sunday morning church attendance. God is not impressed with you. He, He made the sun, the moon, and the stars. He's an infinite being who's existed for eternity past on into eternity future. He sees all. He knows all. He's not impressed by you, but he loves you. See, the thing that we are fighting for when we're trying to prove ourselves to God is something that we have already received. You can't earn it. It's already been given to you. Here's the way 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says it. See what great love the Father has lavished upon us. What a great word, right? See what great love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The Bible says, "God has lavished His love upon you." There's a lesson that I'm trying to teach my children within my household. Whenever they do something wrong, they make a mistake of some kind, and we'll say to them, "Listen, we forgive you." And they'll be like, "But why?" And we'll say, "Because we love you." But why? I'm like. I, I don't know how to explain it because you're mine. I love you because you are mine. When my first son was born, I remember being in the hospital with my wife and as soon as he came into the world, the first thing my wife said is he's so cute. And then after that, we both said like in unison, we love you. It's the first words spoken over him. And guess what? He had never done a thing. At that point in time, it only caused pain. And he came into the world and we both looked at him and we said, we love you. He'd never brought one report card home. He'd never bed his, made his bed once and still hasn't made his bed once. <laughs> there was no reason that we would love him. He was a baby who was vulnerable and dependent upon us, but he was our baby. And so we love him. Stop trying to prove yourself to God. Because the thing that you're after has already been given to you. It's already yours. You are loved by God. He loves you not because of what you've done or what you've accomplished. He loves you simply because you are. And if it can move from your mind to your heart, you might be then able to move beyond yourself and see those, truly see those around you. The other reason that I think we sometimes get stuck on self is because if we're not trying to prove ourselves to God, sometimes we're trying to punish ourselves from God for God, and it keeps us self-centered. If I was to be really, really honest with you, this is my greatest limiting factor for a lot of my life. I, for whatever reason, was convinced that some of the mistakes I had made, some of the things I had done, my unfaithfulness, my disobedience, whatever it might be, was such where God could never love me. Because I I screwed up, I felt like, all of the time. I want to be very clear about one thing. One person's failure may not be the same as another person's failure. One person's version of what sin looks like and the severity of it may be very different from someone else's. So I want to be very clear about this. The severity and the specifics of your mistakes and shortcomings is completely irrelevant. There's no hierarchy of scale here. Because each person may find themselves trying to punish themselves for things they've done that someone else might say, not a big deal. But to that person, it limits them from receiving God's love. So if we're not proving ourselves, sometimes we're, we're busy punishing ourselves for God. And this punishment takes all kinds of shapes and forms. Sometimes it's the way that we think and the things that we say about ourselves. It's just so horrible. Sometimes it's self-hatred from all kinds of ways. We don't believe that we're smart enough, active enough, attractive enough, patient enough, loving enough, self-controlled enough. Sometimes this self-hatred is is an actual physical expression of punishment because we feel like God can't possibly love us. And the underlying belief for many is this. Someone has to pay for all the wrong that I've committed. Someone's got to pay for it. If God's going to love me, then someone's got to cover for all the things and the ways that I've messed up each and every day. And here's what I want you to hear this morning. It's been paid. That punishment has been paid. On the cross of Calvary, this is the reason that Jesus went and he died. So your past failures, your present failures, and yes, your future failures, they have been covered by Jesus. So stop punishing yourself. You will never punish yourself enough so that God will love you. You've already received the very thing that you're longing for. It's yours. Here's what 1 John says. We then become children of God and that is what we are, the Bible says. That means you have a father who loves you, who cares for you, who would do anything for you In multiple places within the scriptures, this word for God is used. In fact, Jesus uses it in the prayer that we prayed earlier when he says, Our Father. It's actually the Aramaic word, Abba, which means Daddy. It's that kind of intimate word. It's that kind of close and personal word. Jesus says, If you want to know how to pray to God, here's how you pray to him. Daddy. It's the kind of word that my kids say when they get hurt in the backyard. That's how we pray to God. That's the kind of close relationship that we can have with him. Abba, Father, a term of endearment, incredibly personal. Author and speaker Brennan Manning tells a really great story about a priest from Detroit named Edward Farrell. And Edward goes to visit his uncle who lives in Ireland on his 80th birthday. And on his uncle's big day, he and his uncle decided to walk along this lake shore quietly at the dawn of the day. And at one point in time, as the sunrise was coming up, they stood there along the shore of the lake, and they basked in the beauty of the rising sun. And then suddenly, without warning, he turned, and his 80-year-old uncle began skipping and jumping down the beach at the ripe old age of 80, beaming and smiling from ear to ear. The nephew said, Uncle Seamus, you really look happy. And he said, Aye, lad. I'm very, very happy. Do you mind telling me why, the nephew says. And Uncle Seamus said this, Yes, lad. You see, my Abba is very, very fond of me. He is very, very fond of me. You see, what Uncle Seamus knew and that many of us in the room fail to recognize is that our Father in heaven is very, very fond of you. He loves you. Tim Keller, author and writer Tim Keller, says it this way. God sees you as you are, loves you as you are, and accepts you as you are. And by his grace, he does not leave you as you are. See, the love of God is not just the thing that accepts us and welcomes us in, but the love of God is actually the fuel, the motivation. It is the power that we need to become something completely different. It is the very thing that moves us beyond ourselves, the things that that move us beyond me. And this movement is only possible by the power of God and his love at work within our life. We don't have the kind of willpower to change ourselves. It doesn't exist within us. It's not within our nature to make it happen. So instead, based upon week one, it's a submission to Jesus each and every day. And it's a reception of God's love that moves us into new ways of existing one of the most powerful prayers that I learned in college from one of my mentors went like this. We would pray oftentimes together God, I can't even love you the way that I should apart from your love. I can't even respond to your love in a way that I should without you loving me first. God, I can't even love those within my family, my wife at the time my girlfriend my children whoever it might be i can't even love them apart from your love so would you so fill me would you so fill me that i would be able to love those around me because of your great love for me one of my greatest joys in this church right now is because i've been here for a little bit of time i won't tell you how long 16 years and I started when I was like 12 or something like that. I can't really remember. Uh, but after 16 years of serving at this church, one of my favorite things, is there are students now who are getting married in this church who were middle school students with me when I first started here. It's one of my greatest joys to watch them grow and then be able to spend time with them in preparation for wedding day. So one of my favorite things is to do is premarital sessions with these individuals as we prepare for their wedding day. And it's funny because we'll sit down and I know many of them are expecting us to sit and like thumb through scripture the whole time as we talk about getting married. And I say at the very beginning, we're not going to be just looking at verse after verse after verse in this whole time together. We're not. Uh, but, But I want you to know that everything that we're going to talk about is couched in a very important principle that comes from the Bible. Matthew 22. If you're going to love your wife, if you're going to love your husband the way that you should, it only takes place by loving God with your heart, soul, and mind, and then loving them the way you love yourself. And if you don't believe, if you don't see yourself the way God sees you, you have no hope of loving your spouse the way you should. You have no hope of loving God in return. This is where we have to start if we wanna move beyond ourselves. First John, Chapter 4, verse 9 through 11, the writer says this in a really beautiful way. He says, This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. Hear this. This is love, not that we loved God, but that God loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love God. One another. We also ought to love one another. John says, you want to know what love looks like? It doesn't actually look like a Valentine's Day dinner. It doesn't look like flowers in a vase or a box of chocolates or a diamond ring. Real, true love looks like a sacrificial death on a cross. Jesus Christ, who gave up his life for us, And not that we loved God first, but that he loved us, the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This word love is used in 1 John chapter 4. And the funny thing is, in the Greek, there are four different words for love to express the kind of love that the writer is talking about. Now, oddly enough, in English, we have one word. So how do you take four words and make them one word? Well, then you just apply it to everything. No wonder we love pizza and we love sunsets and we love all these things and we love our spouses and our children and so forth because the only way we know how to express it. But in the Greek, there is such a depth and a richness to expressing the kind of love the author is actually talking about. And in 1 John chapter 4, when he talks about the love of God, the love of Christ for us, here's the word he uses. It's the word agape. Agape. And very simply, agape is a selfless and sacrificial love. That's what true love looks like. It's a love that gives that doesn't need anything in return. It's the kind of love that out of joy gives itself to others and lifts them up. You see, God so valued you, saw you as so wonderful, saw you as so deserving of grace that he was willing to give his only son as a sacrifice, as an expression of agape love toward you. You are loved by God. One of my favorite books I've ever read, it was actually the book that kind of awakened me out of kind of my self-centered, sulking, trying to make God love me. It was a book called The Ragamuffin Gospel. And in this book, there's a story that the writer tells about a young couple, a husband and a wife, who the wife had cancer in her face. And they went to the hospital to, to meet with some specialists about what they could possibly do for this woman. And the doctor said, here's the deal. We, we have to do some surgery in order to save your life. We're going to have to remove this tumor. But when we do this surgery, there's a high chance that we may have to cut some nerves in your face to save your life. And if we do, then one side of your face will forever droop the, the rest of your life. It will never be the same. It'll be broken. And the husband and the wife, they talked and they decided we have to go about it. No matter the risks, we have to make this happen. And so they decided to go ahead with the surgery. And so they had this surgery, and the, the woman was finished up, and they brought her back to the room to meet with her husband. And the doctor met them there, and he shared the bad news. The good news we've saved your life, but the bad news is we had to cut some of those nerves in your face that we had talked about at the very beginning. And the woman looked in the mirror, and she asked the doctor, will it always be like this? And he says, yes. Yes, it will. And before the wife could shed a tear, the husband said to her, I like it. It's kind of cute. And the writer says that he watched as this husband then bent down beside the bedside. And he took his wife's face in his hands. And the doctor recounts that he watched as a young husband broke his lips to match hers. And kissed her broken mouth to show that their love could still work. That their love could still work. You see, Jesus' broken body and his shed blood matched our broken bodies because of sin to show that our relationship with God, our love of God and reception of love from God could still work. It's yours. It's already yours. You don't have to prove yourself. In fact, you can't prove yourself. You don't have to punish yourself. The punishment's already been paid. It's already yours. You see, the love of God is the very thing that moves us beyond me. To reach out in care and concern to the world around us and to love God, truly love God in return. Would you pray with me? God, we come before you this morning. And first and foremost, God, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for loving us enough that you do not see it fit to leave us in our broken stage our broken space, but instead, God, you sent Jesus as a sacrificial atonement, the very expression of agape love, to win us back. And so, God, I pray that by your Spirit, even now this morning, in the name of Jesus, that your Spirit would move in our hearts and help us to not just believe that you love us, but to truly, in our hearts, know that we are loved by you. Forgive us, God, for the ways that we try to prove ourselves. And forgive us for the ways that we try to punish ourselves. And instead, God, I pray that you would fill us up from bottom to top with your great love for us. And may that be the very thing, the fuel, the motivation, the power that we need to move beyond ourselves. We love you, Lord. We love you. And may we this morning hear you say back to us, you love us, you love us, you love us. It's in your name that we pray, everyone said, amen.